Proverbs chapter 3 in your Bible, a familiar passage of Scripture, verses 5 and 6, probably uh, two of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. But before we jump into that, I ask the question, what does the Bible say should be our right response to the one true God? Or how should we relate to him? Immediately what comes to my mind when I read the scripture and answer to that question is the Bible says we should love God with all of our heart and soul. Our response should be one of love with everything that we have. The Bible says that we should fear God. The Bible talks about that wisdom and fear in the book of Proverbs even. Another right response to God. The Bible also says we should obey God, the obvious answer. It says we should glorify God, which is why we're here on earth in the first place, why we were created to bring glory to God. So there are many right responses and how we should relate or how should we should respond to the one true God. But what about when the Bible says here in Proverbs chapter 3 to trust God? We sing about it often. So uh, tis so sweet it is to trust in Jesus, the hymn says. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, another hymn. And trusting in God is our right response to the Lord. In fact, it is a theme throughout all of scriptures, to trust in God. But when I look at that and I hear that and I go through a trial, we go through a period of hardship in our life, and somebody says, well, trust in the Lord, I wanted to, and God has been working on my heart the past couple months to really understand, well, what does that really even mean? How can I even apply that? How can I trust in God and live a life that trusts God? Well, by way of introduction this morning, I think, number one, we have to define trust. We have to define what trust even means. Trust is to completely lean and put your weight on something. It is a firm belief in the reliability, in the truth, in the ability, or the strength of someone or something. Now, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we just read a moment ago, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, to lean completely on God and to trust in Him in everything. In fact, what's interesting is the definition of the word trust in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, in that context, means to lie helpless, face down. It pictures a servant waiting for his master. It pictures a soldier yielding himself to a conquering general, vulnerable, open, yielding, leaning completely and putting all their weight on him. And so I noticed by way of introduction, we understand the definition of trust. But I also think it's important this morning that we need to know by number two, in order to trust God, you need to know God. If you have your Bible this morning, flip to Psalm chapter 9. I want to show you this. Psalm chapter 9. You can keep your finger in Proverbs because we'll come back there. But Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. So we have defined trust, but we've established that in order to trust God, you need to know God. Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. Don't take my word for it. See what the Bible says. It says in verse number 10, Follow along as I read, and they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. In order to trust God, you need to know him. 
This morning, if I called up one of our teenagers, if I called up, uh, I'm not going to, but let's say I called up Jared back there, and I said, all right, Jared, I want you to come up here, and I want you to stand on this pulpit right here, and uh, your grandma and mom would probably kill me, but I want you to stand on this pulpit right here, and I'm gonna, I want you to fall back, I'm going to catch you. All right, you can do a trust fall, and I'm going to catch you. Now, I'd like to think Jared's been in our youth group for since he was in fifth, sixth grade and just came through, and I have a feeling that Jared, no doubt, would trust me. We know each other. He'd run up here. He'd, he'd come off this uh, pulpit, and I would catch him, all right? But if I asked maybe another adult here this morning, it's the first time you've ever seen me or hearing me preach, yeah, come on up here, stand right here, and I'm going to catch you. The trust probably would not be as strong as it is with Jared. Why? Me and Jared have a connection, we have a relationship, we know each other. And the same thing with God. How can you trust him if you don't know him? And I'm not just talking about salvation this morning, which we'll get to soon, but about knowing God and having a walk and a relationship with him is pivotal and vital in the truth of trusting him. If you flip back to Proverbs chapter 3 where we just were, look at the verses prior to verses uh, to 5 and 6. 5 and 6 are probably the most famous verses. But look at verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So thou shalt find favor and good understanding in the, in the sight of God and man. The Bible says in those verses, obey his precepts, stay in his word, and you will grow in your walk with God. And as you grow in your walk with God, you will learn to trust him. Why? Because you will get to understand and know his very character, who he is. The Bible says that God is good in Psalm 105. The Bible says God is love in 1 John 4, 8. The Bible says God fulfills his promises in Joshua 21, 45. The Bible says God cannot lie in Titus 1, 2. The Bible says God is faithful, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. The Bible says God is merciful, Jeremiah 3, 12. The Bible says in Psalm 18, 2, God is a fortress in a time of trouble. And I can go on and on and on, but this is the very character of God you will get to know and draw close to if you walk with him and you're living in his word. The Bible says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you. Notice this this morning, this is important, to establish this thing of trusting God, to know God is to trust God. Amen. To know him and have a relationship with him is to trust him. We go through things in our lives, and how many times has this happened to me? Something comes up in a difficult situation, and you scratch your head, and God, why are you doing this? Why am I going through this? And immediately the Holy Spirit smites my heart and convicts and says, well, when's the last time you even spent time with me? When's the last time you were even in my word? It's amazing that we see preachers, and we see Christians, and we see people that go through the hardest trial there is, and they're just at peace about it. Man, God is good. Why? Because they have a relationship with God. And when you know God, you trust God. And when you dwell in the secret place and have that relationship with him, you learn to trust him completely with your whole heart, with all of your being, as Proverbs chapter 3 says. And what I want to do this morning is take a few moments really to encourage you in the truth that has encouraged me over the past couple months and to edify your faith, to challenge you to not just understand the concept of trusting God, but living a life 
that trusts God in everything that you do. And I say to you this morning, number one, trust God through your suffering. Trust God through suffering. Three weeks ago at my ordination service, Brother uh, Charlie Clark uh, from Berlin, New Jersey was here. And Brother Charlie, um, after the ordination service, his car uh, broke down. It was over at the Honda dealership. So after we had lunch here, I, I drove him over there. And he said to me, you know, Zach, teenagers and our generation and young people and, man, even adults, especially this day and age, have so many questions about different things. They have questions when it comes to God. You're no longer knocking on a door telling someone about God and they have like, oh, I've been to church and they're little, they grew up in Sunday school. Now when you deal with teenagers or even people in this part of the country, it's, is there even a God? There's no foundation. There's no faith. There's no establishment of anything there. And their first question, is there even a God? And he said, they have so many questions and the Bible is a light unto our path. It is our map. It is, has every answer in it. And it's our job to answer their questions biblically, to show them biblical principles that answer their questions. I don't care what the uh, question is. The answer is in God's word. And so that encouraged me, inspired me, challenged me. And so three weeks ago, what we decided to do in our teen service is I handed out a note card to every one of our teenagers. And I said, don't want you to put your name on it, but I want you to ask any question that you want. Any question that you have to do with God, to do with the Bible, to do with something you're going through, I don't care what it is, I want you to write it down on a note card. I want you to hand it in. Don't put your name to it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to jump in the Bible and we're going to systematically answer those questions from God's word. And so you'd be surprised we had uh, maybe 25, 30 note cards that came in. But one of the first questions that we talked about two weeks ago or three weeks ago maybe now that somebody asked, which is probably what every Christian, what every person has asked once in their life before. And that is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we suffer? Why does Pastor Bish's wife, Mrs. Bish, die of cancer when she serves the Lord with her life? Why did Pastor go through the summer he just went through when he serves God with his life? Why do we suffer? Now, I'm not going to, I'm going to be honest with you this morning, it's a hard question. It's a challenging question. What we did in teen church, and many teenagers have heard this part before, we went all the way back to Genesis to answer this question. And as we go through Genesis, we see in Genesis chapter 1 that we are created in God's image. Father, Son, and Spirit, body, soul, and spirit. We created in God's image. The Bible says in Genesis 1 that God literally took dirt, and water, which is pretty much mud, and formed man, formed Adam, which literally means earth or dirt. So next time we think we're anything special, really we're just dirt and mud in God's sight. And God created Adam out of this mud, formed him, breathed into him the breath of life, the Bible says. And Adam was given dominion over all the animals and to name them and and to guard the garden and and to follow God. And I'm sure while he's there and he's naming the animals and he sees male and female, male and female, the question in his brain is, well, where, you know, where's my partner? Where's my female? And God puts him under a deep sleep and takes Adam's rib and uh, creates Eve and breathes into her the breath of life. And now we have Adam and Eve and they become one flesh and they become one together. They have children the ultimate real picture of humanity. But God gives Adam one job. Stay with me this morning because we're building a foundation to answer that question. Bear fruit and protect the garden, protect Eve. Now the obvious question would be, well, from what? What do I have to protect her from? 
Well, we all know the story. Then comes the serpent. Adam should have probably sniffed that out from a mile away if he was doing his job, his responsibility of a man to look out and to watch out, and he doesn't see it coming. And here comes the serpent and uh, deceives Eve and lies to Eve and twists God's word, which, by the way, that's the same thing the devil has been doing since Genesis, taking what God has formed to be right and holy and pure and twisted it. And we see that in marriages now. We see that in churches. We see that in music, things that God designed to be honoring, glorifying to him. He takes and he twists it. Same trick. He's been doing it since Genesis. And he does that to Adam and Eve, and what happens? The human race falls, and their sin, uh, sin comes into the world, and they are cursed, and childbearing will be rough, and death is introduced. And now we go into the next chapter, and we see their children, Cain and Abel. And now the first ever human ever in the world is dead, is murdered. First time blood has been shed. And I look at that story, and I always wonder, man, that doesn't make sense to me because Abel came by faith to God. Cain did not, had wrong motives, and Abel dies. And Cain just gets cursed and just goes on his way. Man, that's a prime example of a bad thing happening to a good person who came by faith. And then what happens? Things go from bad to worse. We see all this take place, and then the Bible tells us a drastic turn of events. We have Noah's Ark, and evil and sin, and God unleashes his power and judgment. Because God gave man free choice to obey or to rebel. And what do we do? We rebel. And it sent the whole earth into destruction. And, I mean, what happened? I, I believe that if God just let, never brought the flood and never uh, came down and, and, and wiped out the earth as he did, they would have killed or destroyed themselves because that's where it was headed. Full of rebellion and death and destruction. So God in his mercy sends the flood, raises up Noah and his family, gives man, gives humankind a fresh start. And really, when Noah out of the ark plants a new garden, man, we're at the beginning. We have a fresh start. And I'm not going to go through the whole Bible here, but what happens immediately after that? We have the Tower of Babel. God gives them the one, one commandment, and he says, okay, spread now throughout the earth. And what do they do? What do we always do? The complete opposite. They stay together. They take the Tower of Babel. They start building the heaven. God looks down. And in his mercy, again, he spreads them. He causes them to speak different languages, and he causes them to spread and populate the earth. And so now we see that God separates them, forces them to do what he commanded, and now we see different languages. We see the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire, which goes to the Greek and then goes to Rome. Cultures that are built off death and pain and rebellion against God. Now I say all that to say this this morning. So many times we look at those bad things and we look at those stories and we get captivated or we get um, consumed with, man, why did, they, why did they eat the apple? Why did those people not obey and know God had to send the flood? And why was Abel murdered? And what should captivate us when we see those stories, what we should focus on is God's mercy. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't say, okay, that's it. Going to hell, you're dying. Immediately after Cain and Abel, he, he didn't say, all right, that's it. I'm done. This isn't going to work. Cain and Abel, nope, you murdered, you're done. God showed mercy. God showed love. What did God do? He sent angels down to protect Adam and Eve. He gave them children. He provided for them. He gave them second chance. And when the world rebelled, he had Noah. And he, and he uh, gave a man a fresh start. Man, God's mercy, God's long-suffering, God's love throughout men's rebellion and sin and death is what should captivate us when we read those stories. 
But I want you to understand, in the middle of all this going on, God keeps his promise. What did he promise to Eve in Genesis? He said, I will send someone through your seed that will crush the serpent's head. And so then we come to the New Testament, and we see Jesus Christ is, comes to earth. The son of life is born into a culture of death. And God goes, Jesus comes down and performs miracles, and God is, uh, Jesus is doing so many awesome things. And man, this, the disciples are probably thinking, this is it. This is who we heard about. This is who the prophecies, the prophecies are true. God is, uh, Jesus is going to uh, heavenize earth. He's going to bring redemption. He's going to do everything. And then what happens? We kill him. He dies the most brutal, bloody murder ever in human history as he hangs from a cross, suffocating with thorns shoved into his skull, not little tiny thorns on a bush, but big nail-like thorns that are shoved into his skull, and he's spat on, and a cat of nine tails is thrown, and back in those days, those whips had pieces of glass on them, so as they whipped Christ and they brought back, it would bring pieces of his flesh off of him. A bloody, awful murder, Jesus Christ dies, and the disciples have to be thinking, well, what on earth is going on? Here's a thought this morning. When Jesus died on the cross, he rose again on the third day, and nothing was ever the same again. God took death, and he flipped it on its head. And so here's the thought. Why do bad things happen to good people? I can't give you the exact answer because I'm not God. Our finite minds can understand God's ways are greater than our ways, the Bible says. But I can trust when I look in the scripture that if God can take the worst thing to ever happen in human history, and that's the death of his son on a cross to die the way he did, and he took our rebellion, and he took our sin, and he died on the cross, and God took that horrific situation and turned it into the best thing that will ever happen to us, and that is heaven, that is life, that is hope, that is salvation, takes the worst and turns it into the best, then I promise you, Christian, this morning, I promise you, adult, this morning, I promise you, teenager, this morning, whatever you're going through, whatever suffering you're facing, if you put your trust in God, he can take your horrific situation and he can turn it into something good for his honor and glory. If he can do it with the death of his own son, I promise you this morning, if you trust him, he can do it with what you're facing. What does Romans 8.28 says? For a familiar verse, and we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. I'll say again this morning, because I have already seen my God use and take the most horrific things and events in the world and use them for the greater good in which we can have heaven, life, and hope, I know if I trust him, he will do the same thing with my pain and my suffering. If I lean completely on him, if I yield to him, as the verse says in Proverbs, he will meet our needs. He will work through our suffering. Trust God through your suffering. But can I say to you this morning, not just your suffering, but trust God's sovereign hand. Trust his sovereign hand. Now, we could spend a lot of time here this morning, but you can't really talk about the concept and the teaching in the Bible of trusting God if you don't address God's sovereignty. Sovereignty of God, simply put, is God is in control. If you are a child of God this morning, if you are a saved believer, then find hope that no matter what you're going through, God is in control. His sovereign hand, which is a teaching throughout the whole Bible, I challenge you to study and look and see how God works, but his sovereign hand means that there isn't anything that will enter your life that God does not either decree or allow. 
and nothing that will ever enter your life that if you're willing to trust God, he cannot work out for good. Again, what we just read a few moments ago, Romans 8, 28. Now understand this morning what I said a few minutes ago. We can't always understand what God is doing. Sometimes God is moving pieces behind the scenes, and we've no idea what, why, why is this happening. But God, behind the scenes, if you're trusting in him and you're obeying him and you're in his word, he's taking the puzzle pieces and he's bringing it together. You can't always see the light at the end of the tunnel. You just see what's directly in front of you. You just see what you're facing today. But God sees a month from now. God sees a year from now. God sees two years from now where he has a perfect plan that he's putting together and his sovereign hand is at work and in control in your life if you'll trust him. Isaiah 55 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, we can't always understand, but we can trust in who he is, and we can trust in his sovereign hand that he knows what is best, and he's in full control. I think a prime example of this thought is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you for sake of time. But Jesus is teaching, and he says, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. If God is in control of the sparrows, child of God, how much more is he in control of my life and your life? If we trust him. Hey, he brought you this far this morning. Each of you, if we took the time and passed this microphone around the auditorium, could give a unique testimony of how God brought you to him, how you accepted Christ. So many circumstances, so many things that had to take place, so many people praying for you and things that God was working in your life and he brought it together for good so you are saved. You know he's in your heart. You're a child of God and you're in church this morning. Why? Because God's sovereign hand was at work and people were praying for you. And if God can bring you this far, and no matter what you're facing this morning, you're his child. Trust him. He loves you. How much more value of you than the sparrows, which he knows everything that happens to them. He knows exactly what's going on in your life right now this morning. And if you yield on him completely with all of your weight, if you trust in him, he will see you through. We said, number one, trust in God through suffering. Trust in God's sovereign hand. One of my fav favorite quotes, we talk about the sovereignty of God, is from Charles Spurgeon. says, when you go through a trial... The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Trust God through your suffering. Trust God's sovereign hand. Number three, can I say to this morning, trust God for the strength to stand. What does that mean? We live in a day and age full of sin, immorality, murder. We talked about the devil and how he twists things and the list can go on and on. Things are getting worse, it seems, as time goes. You turn on the news and you're immediately, you know, depressed within 10 minutes of watching it. Our teenagers and the next generation, our youth, are facing things that when you were kids, we never would have comprehended or imagined. And they face these temptations and they face these things constantly in school, with their friends, in their homes, on their cell phones, everything attacking them. And the devil is doing the same thing with every believer. But we need more than ever our country... Hey, our families, hey, our kids who are downstairs need Christians who will stand for the Lord. Christians who are not ashamed for people to know you're a Christian. People who are not ashamed to hand out a gospel track. Yes, it can be hard. 
And yes, the world is pushing against God and pushing against the Bible and pushing against Christianity. But can I remind you what the Bible says? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And more than ever, dad, more than ever, mom, more than ever, grandparents, more than ever, teenager, we need Christians who will stand for God in this day that we live in. Christians who are not ashamed, I'm not saying you go to work and stand up in the middle of, of your lunchroom and start preaching a sermon, but there's no reason the people you work with should not know you're a Christian. There's no reason that off the clock you can't hand them a track. The Bible says Jesus says to be the light of the world, be the salt of the earth. That's our job. That's our commission. That's our commandment. And more than ever do we need Christians who will stand for God. And that's not easy. That doesn't just happen. That comes with what? What we talked about in the beginning, develop a relationship with God. When you develop a relationship with God, you'll trust him. When you trust him, you'll have boldness and strength to stand. Acts says in 4.13, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, some people were talking about the disciples, and it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, notice this phrase, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Their boldness came from spending time with God. And we need to trust God for the strength to stand. Hey, for, for any other reason, the next generation needs to see some older Christians who stand for God. Our kids need to see some parents and see some older siblings and grandparents who stand for God, who make God's word the preeminence in their household, who make honoring God the preeminence in their life who make the things of God in church what's most important, who make us stand for the Lord, Christians who stand strong for God. But we must trust God for the strength to stand. I said, number one, trust God through your suffering. Trust God's sovereign hand. Trust God for the strength to stand. And then can I say to you this morning, number four, and we're all done in a minute here, trust God for salvation's plan. Listen to me this morning. There's only one way to heaven. And that is by grace through faith, by putting your trust in God, his son, and his word. You cannot work your way to heaven. Titus says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't do so many good deeds to get to heaven. No, it's simple as trusting in God for salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is God's gift for us. All we have to do is accept it, to trust him, and to take that step in faith. If you're here this morning and you want to trust God through the suffering, I want to trust God's sovereign hand in confusing hard times. I want to trust God to be an example to my family and to this world for the strength to stand. Well, that's great and that's awesome and I pray you do so, but you can't take steps two, three, and four if you haven't taken step one. And that is putting your faith in God accepting Jesus Christ, trusting in him, have a relationship with him, knowing that for sure, if you die today, you would go to heaven. Amen. Trust God for salvation's plan. My challenge to you this morning, really simple, really basic, trust God. It's so simple and so basic that so many times we lack the faith. And what does Proverbs say we do? We lean on our own understanding. And most of us can testify what happens when we do that. Going through a hard time this morning, suffering trials, trust God. 
You're confused to what God is doing in your life or what the future holds. Trust in God's sovereign hand. You're scared of the direction our world is headed. Can I challenge you? Be bold and trust God for the strength to stand firm for him. Not sure you're a child of God this morning. Not sure you have ever accepted or received Jesus Christ into your heart. Don't leave here without putting your trust in God.